Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled KOL Knockout Cancer Pain Management Edition is provided by Evolve Medical Education and IASLC. It is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic REMS Program Companies. This replay of a live broadcast is a fun and exciting game show style quiz competition that features key opinion leaders, KOLs, as contestants. Hosted by program chair, Dr. Pranshu Mohindra, and features doctors Melissa Tepley, Judith Pace, and Fanula Crowley. There will be learning, laughter, and only one KOL left standing. All right, everyone, here's the moment. Uh, KOL Knockout Cancer Pain Management Edition. We are very excited to get three good uh, experts on pain management, specifically with cancer, fighting it out today to see who's the strongest of them all. And as they come out with their opinions, their recommendations and cross-question each other and, and hopefully beat them out so that we have one clear winner. This uh, competition uh, and exciting learning opportunity is brought to you by the Evolved Medical Education and endorsed by the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, ISLC. We will get started as soon as all of you have completed your uh, pre-registration or pre-test quiz. And hoping everything everyone is uh, dialed in. Uh, let's get started. And so um, introducing myself, I'm Pranshu Mohendra, a radiation oncologist, vice chair of operations and quality in radiation oncology at uh, UH Seidman Cancer Center in Cleveland, Ohio. I also chair uh, the education committee of the ISLC and have been engaged with this committee here. Uh, joining our contestants, uh, three really uh, important members. Uh, we'll have them introduce themselves. Uh, we have Dr. Melissa Tepley. Dr. Tepley. Hi, everyone. I am a palliative care physician at the Buffett Cancer Center at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. And I came in my unicorn outfit tonight. I am chasing that elusive dream of trying to treat patient's pain without any complications or side effects from what we're doing for them. That is so important. It's all about managing their cancer outcomes while and maintaining their quality of life. Thank you, Dr. Tepley. All right, our next contestant is Dr. Pace. Uh, Dr. Judy Pace, if you want to please introduce yourself. Sure, thank you. So my name is Judy Pace. I am an advanced practice nurse in the Division of Hematology Oncology in the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern in Chicago. But what I'm really called is the pain, poop, and pot nurse in our oncology clinic. And I decided that trying to dress up in that kind of costume would probably not be conducive to many of you who might be having your dinner at this time. Thanks for inviting me. That's exciting. Uh, well, uh, dinner or not, uh, we, we need everyone excited. So that's uh, let's go on to our next contestant, and that is Dr. Crowley. Dr. Crowley? Hi, I'm Fanula Crowley. I am an integrated palliative care and hematology oncology fellow at Mount Sinai in New York. Obviously the underdog uh, in the in the contest today, but looking looking forward to the to the contest. Underdogs are what make a co any competition alive, and so uh, the competition is on, Dr. Pace, Dr. Tepley, uh, let's go for it. Uh, with that exciting introduction, uh, let's continue. Um, the disclosures, uh, none of the faculty and staff involved have any financial relationships with ineligible companies. Uh, the Evolve Medical Education staff and planners also do not have any financial re relationships with ineligible companies. 
This activity is supported by an independent education grant from the opioid analgesics REMS program companies. The learning objectives today are to address and resolve the educational needs uh, through a, the following objectives. Apply proper patient communication strategies, formulate a plan to wean cancer patients from various pain management strategies when appropriate, explain opioid dosing, titration, and adverse effects regarding the pain management options, outline pharmacological options and alternate therapies for treating cancer pain, and finally, to illustrate how to effectively assess and screen cancer patients who require pain management. With that, uh, we are all set to get started. The boxing gloves are on and uh, we are ready to box each one, each one out. Fortunately, I'll be the referee, so I just have to make sure I stay safe and, and uh, all three of them stay uh, safe as well. So let's get started. Again, we'll have a series of cases. Each case will start with a case presentation, uh, talking about uh, the history and the, and the cancer pain etiology. And then we'll move on to the treatment recommendation, which is when I will call out on all the three contestants one by one to get their answers. At the end of each case, uh, you will have to vote who you agree with. Of course, with this format, uh, it's, your engagement is really very important. So keep the polls on and keep voting through. So case one, we'll start off with a typical cancer pain at presentation that many of us see in the clinic. And so this is a 47-year-old diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer, adenocarcinoma in the right lower lobe with malignant diffusion, brain and bone metastasis and stage 4B. Uh, she presented with a severe upper back pain during a postural change, basically bending forward activity. Uh, the pain was relatively subacute to acute in onset and was severe and throbbing character and unbearable in nature. The visual analog score for her was eight out of 10. Let's get started on that screening tool itself uh, for our contestants. Uh, which is your preferred pain intensity rating screening tool and why? And, and how do you use that in your clinic? And randomly, we will get started with the unicorns, Dr. Tepley. I tend to use the visual analog scale. My rationale for that is that is what patients are hearing in most other settings. And so it's not as confusing to them. All right. Dr. Pace. So I'm going to buck the um, the answer here. I have used this numeric rating scale, zero to 10, for such a long time. And yet people struggle. So I wish the Joint Commission would get on board, but I really prefer mild, moderate, or just to get a sense of how intense the pain is and, and then asking patients. And so with this degree of intensity, is this keeping you from being active? And if so, what are the things you'd like to be able to do that you can't now? That's important. I guess it's always about the ease uh, for the patients and how effectively can they score it, especially when they are in a lot of pain. As you can imagine, these are not the questions that patients would want to keep hearing from every clinic member they go to. So a simple score is important. Dr. Crowley, what's your favorite? Yeah, I think we use the, the visual analog score probably the most, but I think what's important really about these scales is that the kind of the best use of them really is kind of um, as a control for the same patient the next time they come. So, it, you know, sometimes it's not the initial score is the most important. It's, it's more comparing how that progresses as, as you, you treat the pain because some one person's age is different to another person's age, et cetera. So it's, it's more useful, I think, in, in comparing them to, the, to that patient when they come back later. And of course, important is the consistency in being able to score uh, between that. I guess the question really is, will, will patients truly uh, use the same screening tool and be able to answer in a consistent manner when they are in stages of 
intense pain versus low pain, or would there be variability? I think that's why I enjoy the mild, moderate, and severe. If it's just too difficult. And if anybody here has been in a, an emergency room or in a hospital setting and they've asked you your pain score, it is really a difficult thing to conceptualize this really serious symptom as a number. So people struggle with that. All right. So we have visual analog score, the numerical rating scale, the, the, and there's also the faces pain rating scale. And all of these are important screening tools. The message there is that the screening tools are important for us to be able to assess uh, how much pain uh, is impacting the patient's day-to-day -day activities. So this patient had a, a CT scan of the chest, which in addition to identifying the primary lung tumor mass, identified this paraspinal tumor that's shown in the CT scan image there in the red circle that's uh, eroding into the neural foramina and also uh, eroding into the ribs, uh, which clearly explains the pain. There are additional sites of metastatic disease uh, in, uh, within the chest and other areas. So with, with this uh, imaging finding, uh, the patient was started uh, on a strong opioid um, by the practitioner directly at oxycodone, 10 milligrams every eight hours, along with a fentanyl patch, 25 micrograms uh, uh, Q3 days. Uh, it was observed that only 60% of pain was relieved with this prescribed dose of oxycodone and fentanyl patch. So that leads us to the questions. Uh, let's start with Dr. Crowley. What are your thoughts about the combination of these drugs as first-line therapy for this uh, this unfortunate patient situation? Yeah, so I think when we're thinking about what we're going to use first-line therapy, there's always a few things that we think about. One, which I, I didn't catch in the previous slide, is you know, I suppose, does this patient have organ dysfunction or not? Because that usually puts us into kind of different categories um, in terms of, of what opioids we can use. So if someone has issues with kidneys or, or liver, then we can't use uh, usually morphine, which is, is us our usual first line. And then you move to things like oxycodone. Um, you can use in, in renal failure but, or renal dysfunction, but you need to, to monitor it more closely. And then hydromorphone is one that we would use most often. And then fentanyl is a good is a good medication for anyone that has any sort of, of organ dysfunction. Um, so I think, you know, that kind of is one of the, the big things that determines what we start first. I think usually in our practice, if they don't have organ dysfunction, we usually would start with morphine. For people that are not here in, in the, the US or not joining from the US, you know, we have a big shortage of opioids at the moment. So it can be very difficult to get medications like oxycodone um, on a regular basis. So last week I had to send oxycodone prescription to eight pharmacies to try and get it filled. So we usually would start with morphine for that reason, just because it's easier. Um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with starting with the oxycodone and fentanyl, fentanyl patch here. The other thing to think about then in terms of what you're starting is what type of pain it is. And I think it is appropriate in this case. You know, I think considering where the, the lesion is, I think it is possible that he would also have neuropathic pain. But I know from the start of the case presentation, uh, it didn't seem like he was having burning or, or shooting pain. It was more of a kind of nociceptosomatic pain that they described in the first one. All right. So you, you touch multiple points. Obviously, knowing the patient's medical history, associated medical comorbidities are, are important, and, and trying to characterize the pain itself is relevant. Uh, but you, you feel that this combination is an accepted option. Dr. Tepley, what are your thoughts about using uh, starting off with a combination of these two drugs as first-line therapy? One thing I didn't have clarity on is where this patient is being seen. So if they're in the inpatient setting, that 
that has a big impact on what I am doing for treating their pain. If I were treating this person as an outpatient, I would be a little bit more hesitant to start both short acting and long acting opioid for them. Uh, whereas in the inpatient setting, you can kind of sort of start with anything, just start somewhere. And then you're doing frequent reassessments that you could do, you know, every hour or every few hours. Uh, it, and specifically, you have the ability to do that multiple times a day. Whereas in the outpatient setting, that's going to be a little bit more difficult. So I uh, I would be a little bit more reluctant. I would probably start them on a short-acting opioid in the outpatient setting and then be in touch with them by phone the following day to see how things are going. And if they're taking regular doses, which my threshold is usually at least four times a day, uh, and or if they're waking up in the middle of the night, then I start to consider a long-acting opioid. And that would also help kind of figure out the short-acting opioid dosing. The other thing that I would have a very low threshold on for this person is to start steroids because of that cancer being near the spinal cord, because there's likely some inflammatory pain that's going on there. Um, and then I am hoping that I am getting radiation oncology to take a look at this person's situation and see them as soon as possible to think about radiation starting for them as well. All right. So a, a very important points, the setting of the patient inpatient versus outpatient does impact our treatment choices and, and allows us to balance between using a short acting and a long acting version. So that was the message from Dr. Tepley. Dr. Pace, how do you look at this combination as your choice? You bet. So I would be really pretty reluctant to start a fentanyl patch. We look at a fentanyl patch, 25 micrograms, that's approximately equal to 50 milligrams of oral morphine in a 24 hour period. And I believe from this case that she was opioid naive. It's not exactly clear, but if she was indeed naive, that's a, a really big jump. Um, so like Dr. Tepley mentioned, I would feel much more comfortable starting with the immediate release opioid um, on a regular basis. And again, as we talked about whether she's an outpatient or an inpatient might dictate the frequency uh, for that short acting. We wrote the ASCO guidelines on the use of opioids in people with cancer. And in fact, that was our recommendation to start with a short acting opioid until you get a sense of how well they tolerate this and an approximate dose at which they get pretty good comfort. I'm jumping ahead, but one of the questions that you're asking about later. And that's where the referee puts, pulls in the whistle and oh. says, yes, we don't jump ahead and, and we oh, follow darn. the route there. Uh, <laughs> but that I'm, I appreciate that enthusiasm and, and maybe some points for, for that as well. Uh, but again, very important point that you noted there is, is the history of opioid use uh, has a bearing on what treatment options would be better for patients in different settings. I think all of you uh, agreed on recommending some kind of short acting, whether that's oxycodone or, or morphine uh, as a starting point, especially in outpatient setting. Um, so in this case, uh, let's uh, going with, with the story we have, if the patient uh, reached this level and uh, presumably the medication doses were escalated gradually to reach to this point of 10 milligrams oxycodone and, and a fairly high dose of uh, uh, for the fentanyl patch itself, when you are using a combination therapy of a short acting and a long acting drug, what is your individual approach for gradually titrating the dose up? Uh, is there a particular formula that you like to use in your clinic or a practical rule of thumb, uh, Dr. Crowley? 
Um, so I think in this patient where you have a fentanyl patch, um, you know, titrating the fentanyl patch is a little bit different to titrating other opioids in that you, you know, you can't kind of up-titrate it every day. So usually up-titrate it every, every 72 hours um, and then, you know, longer over a six-day period on, on subsequent titrations. So because of that, a lot of the time we will try and optimize um, the breakthrough uh, first and, and figure out how much extra we need to add to the long acting uh, before we would increase the fentanyl patch. So I think how we do that is, you know, we would try and optimize the oxycodone to see um, how much we need and, and how often to achieve the pain that we need. So in this case, if, you know, the patient has, you know, 60% pain, which would probably be classed as moderate, you'd increase by 25 to 50% the dose. Um, see how, how that does. In this case, it's PO. So an hour later, you should see the, the kind of maximal effect of that. Uh, and then you'd go from there. And then when you have data of a, a few days of how, how much she's needing to, to optimize her pain, then you can add that then, convert it, and then add it to the, to the fentanyl patch. All right. Um, so again, trying to get an estimate using the short acting and building up. Uh, Dr. Pace, uh, how would you approach a, a combination regimen like so this? Yeah, so the 25 to 50% is a, a nice range. What I see often happening in the clinic is people will just readminister the same dose. And we all know that the definition of crazy is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, right? So I would think about a range of 25 to 50%, but look at the patient who's in front of you. Is this patient sedated? Does this patient have a lot of comorbidities then err on the, the, the lower side? And if they're in really pretty excruciating pain and tolerating the opioids okay, then I would go with the even maybe more than 50% increase. Got it. Dr. Tepley? I would largely echo what Dr. Pace and Dr. Crowley are saying, but put it in a, a slightly more simplified questions. What I tend to ask the patient is, when you take the dose of the oxycodone, is it helping a ton? Is it helping somewhat or is it not helping at all? And if it is not helping at all, then I will have them try double the dose of what I have given them. If it is helping some, then my next question is about how often are you taking it? If it's helping some slash enough um, and they're taking that every four plus hours, then I probably would would stick with that dose, but maybe have them take it a little bit sooner as it's starting to wear off. Um, whereas if they're saying, yeah, it helps, but it only helps every two or three hours, then I am probably going to initially increase the dose of that oxycodone a little bit, such as like 15 milligrams instead of 20. Um, but I'm also starting to think about adding up the total daily dose and calculating that into increasing the long-acting dose of the medicine. All right. So using the response uh, as, as your measure to decide how much to escalate uh, the dose uh, and whether to 25 to 50% or, or really doubling at the low dose ranges uh, and definitely on how long the patient has been on those medications. So, so very important points coming from our three contestants on this. Um, as this patient continued on, on the regimen that was uh, chosen for this patient, uh, the patient starts developing itching around the patch side. Uh, I guess I would make this as a more of a generic conversation as well. Let's 
patch is easy to remove and of course that can be addressed but let's say if patient was on an extended release morphine or some kind of a delayed release formulation and starts having some side effects from it how would you all approach uh, that setting when the patient is on good control but it's now starting to have side effects uh, dr tepley maybe if you want to continue the conversation i will try an opioid rotation to some other long acting medicine I find that I'm pretty limited in my long-acting pain options with insurance coverage. So usually that is fentanyl patch or methadone. uh, In my experience, it's hard for me to get long-acting oxycodone covered anymore. And so opioid rotation is going to be the first thing that I will think about. And then sometimes I will consider adding Zofran for some of the anti-serotonergic effects that that can have to try to see if that possibly helps with itching. And sometimes I'm getting a two for one out of that because people are otherwise taking it for nausea. Other antihistamines are an option that they can be really sedating. So that's Zofran is the first thing I will try if opioid rotation is not helping. Dr. Pace? So I learned an amazing option from our hospice nurses that when someone, and this only obviously works when it's an itching that has occurred around the patch site or underneath the patch. Obviously, if you apply a steroid cream, the patch won't stick. But if you take an inhaled steroid, like an over-the-counter nasal spray, something that is aqueous or one of the inhaled steroid sprays for people with asthma, Let it sit and dry for a moment, spray the area where you're going to apply the patch, and then um, that seems to mitigate any potential erythema and generalized itching that would be occurring as a result of the patch itself. This also works really well with the Butrans or Buprenorphine patch, which is a seven-day patch, and I do tend to see a little bit more erythema I think just because the skin is occluded for seven days instead of three. Right. So a nasal spray or the steroid to start off with. Antihistamines are covered. Dr. Crowley, do you have any other third option that you really love? Um, well, that, that was a really cool fun fact that I didn't know, actually. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I think usually we would try like a non-drowsy antihistamine. And if not, then as Dr. Tessie said, we would rotate probably to another to another opioid. All right, so opioid rotations uh, uh, is is a common theme there. Uh, w- with that uh, and mo- moving the case along, um, as you all mentioned, the patient's background is very important as you come to a uh, decision with regards to the best pain management strategy. This patient is young, educated. She's working as a caregiver in a nursing home. So sees patients around who are in different uh, pain needs. She's married uh, with a young son, lives in a joint family with excellent support. She's non-smoker herself. Uh, of course, at this young age, she's concerned about all the issues in her life, and she would wish to live long with her family as long as possible. All this is causing deep stress and depression. So the question is, as you are working up your strategy for pain management for these patients, how do you look at the social history and other factors, and what other supporting referrals do you initiate uh, while you work on the pain side? Dr. Crowley. Yes, I think we're so, so lucky in, in palliative care because, you know, in the clinic I see patients in, we have social work and we have um, the spiritual care in that clinic. So a lot of the time we actually go in uh, and see these patients together, which is really, really great. So while I'm doing um, the medical assessment, they're doing a social and they're doing a, a spiritual assessment. Um, and I think the, you know, it's, it's great how we can work together in those situations. 
And I think I get a lot more out of the visits when I have the, the IDT members with me just because they're able to, to hone in on different aspects of care that are really important. Um, I think we all know that mood um, and social situations and everything else can affect your, affect your pain. Um, so it's really, really important that patients are supported uh, to have these extra stresses outside their outside of just their cancer diagnosis addressed as well um, because I, I think in someone whose mood is lower they're stressed or the they're anxious it's going to be really really difficult to get their pain under control in, in that environment so I definitely make sure that they're on board we also then also have the option of referring patients for music therapy um, massage therapy all these other integrative therapies as well um, which patients find really really beneficial so they're also a group of, of people that I would also get on board in, in certain scenarios. Getting palliative care involved is, is an important step that Dr. Crowley identifies, and we, we all agree on the importance of that, and of course, using other integrative uh, treatment options. Dr. Pace. So think about pain as a biopsychosocial, spiritual phenomenon, and then think about who are the professionals who can help us? And Dr. Crowley's absolutely right. Palliative care is a great place for this woman in particular. I would think about mental health counselors, again, not because she's crazy, because she's going through the normal stress of being diagnosed with a serious illness, social work. If you have chaplains available, um, integrative therapy, as Dr. Crowley mentioned, all of the different team members that we can pull together. And even if you aren't working in a palliative care team, you can kind of use all the resources available to you. She probably would benefit at some point with physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, and maybe even some rehab. She's She's got a physical job. She's That's gonna be a very difficult thing. And then there's another wrinkle that I wanna just introduce, and that is, we are talking about using opioids for this gal and she has a 20 year old son at home and it says living in a joint family. So I don't know who all the members of the family are, but this would be a really important time to talk about safety with opioids. Such an important observation. Uh, uh, that was a very, very sharp comment uh, there, Dr. Pace. Uh, yes, especially with, with the risk factors of opioid abuse, which we'll cover in a, in a little bit. That would be important. Dr. Tepley, anything that you would counter argue or, or support? I support all of those referral resources. I recognize that not every cancer center has access to all of those resources that Dr. Crowley and Dr. Pace have mentioned. I think for me, it's trying to think about being considerate about pacing the introduction of some of those resources because it's very easy for people to be very overwhelmed by so many appointments and so many team members and each team, each referral comes with its own team. Um, and so I think it's trying to prioritize what seems like the most pressing issue and trying to address that as possible and then gathering in other resources over time as it's warranted. All right, that come, that's a pretty strong counterpunch there by Dr. Tepley. I think recognizing the resources is important. Also, we all need to keep in mind this patient's just diagnosed with a metastatic cancer. There's going to be tons of cancer-related appointments that are also going to be uh, adding to the plate. Uh, with that, uh, move, moving this along, I, I know, Dr. Crowley, in your prior uh, uh, description, you talked about the type of pain, whether this is truly neuropathic or not, and that is very relevant. Looking at the location, uh, and, and on further history, let's say we say that this is a neuropathic type of pain. 
uh, what are the adjuvant analgesics uh, that uh, you all would consider uh, in the management of cancer-related neuropathic pain? And maybe we'll start with Dr. Pace on that. So generally, I liked Dr. Tepley's re recommendation earlier about dexamethasone. That would be clearly warranted for this particular patient. The other neuropathic agents that we consider are the adjuvant analgesics might be the gabapentinoids, either gabapentin or pregabalin. They're both working on the same alpha-2 delta subunit of the calcium channel. The benefit of pregabalin is it has a little bit better bioavailability, so it can be given twice a day, whereas gabapentin really, to be effective, needs to be TID. One does have to dose reduce if the individual has a, a low creatinine clearance, so that's something we need to consider. And then the other... Um, major category of drugs that could be helpful, particularly if she's having some mood issues, might be the SNRI, particularly duloxetine, which would be Cymbalta. And if we couldn't get the pain under control using those agents, then one could consider NMDA antagonists like ketamine. I joke that most everybody who gets discharged from my hospital leaves with a lidocaine patch. I would have very low anticipation that that would be particularly helpful with a, a deep kind of pain as this likely is, but sometimes desperate times call for desperate measures. Right, marshalling all the resources and, and starting with steroids and then escalating between gabapentin, pregabalin, and then other medications. Dr. Tepley. I'm going to say something that might possibly be very controversial because every guideline that I see out there seems to prefer pregabalin over gabapentin. And I can't tell you how many patients I have that cannot tolerate pregabalin and do so much better with gabapentin. And I know that gabapentin is considered a, I don't know, like a dirtier drug in terms of how it works on various receptors. But so that's, if you're hemming and hawing about which one to do in my practice, I tend to start with gabapentin first. Um, I, every, the majority of the times when I've tried pregabalin, I'm inevitably switching back to gabapentin due to tolerance issues. I have a very low threshold for patient, patients who are presenting like this to switch their long acting or to start with the long acting of methadone because of that NMDA antagonism. And I would consider an SNRI, although I anecdotally really don't see those helping a ton for neuropathic pain in the setting of cancer. Um, so I would be using it primarily more for the mood and then maybe crossing my fingers that it would help with the pain. And then depending on how severe this pain seems and if it is really, really horrific, I might start to think about an intrathecal pain pump um, and that I don't know how far this case is moving along, but that's something in the back of my mind that I might start thinking about if the pain is not getting better with all the things we've been discussing. Right. So your preference in over of gabapentin uh, as, a, as a starting point uh, is, and then trying to explore other options. Dr. Crowley. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's worth saying, I guess, in this area that other than like chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy, there isn't any, you know, great evidence um, favoring one over the the other in, in terms of the, the the kind of main three agents that we we mentioned. So then I think, as as others have said, a lot of the time it's looking at what else you want to, you know, treat at the same time. So in this case, if you want to use depression, then maybe you'd start with duloxetine. I think important to warn patients that you know the GI side effect, especially in when you start that medication, can sometimes be quite tough. So sometimes patients need support in the in the first while with that, uh, and then in the trials that 
you know, in, in a lot of the trials with duloxetine, it's, you know, 60 milligrams. So a lot of the time you're starting on 30 and then you up titrate after, after two weeks to the 60. So it's, it's taking quite a while until you're getting to a place where you're going to um, see, you know, any sort of benefit. Um, and then as, you know, Dr. Tapley was saying about the pregabalin, another thing about pregabalin is a lot of insurances won't cover it unless you've trialed uh, gabapentin as well. So a lot of the time, I find we're not starting off with that um, aside from the tolerance just because we we can't get that covered so there are some other um, considerations uh, other things which again don't really have great evidence but are, are things that some patients have come and said that you know if they found it helpful is like tens therapy and other integrative therapies like that um, you know anecdotally uh, patients have found them helpful for one reason or another but there isn't great evidence um, to, to support them kind of globally as treatment for neuropathic pain Right, Dr. Crowley, uh, clearly your response was so exciting. Dr. Tepley had to take a jump uh, and, and get her uh, bearings back. Uh, with, with those answers, uh, I think all of you touch a little bit on other treatment options beyond the medications, intrathecal pump or um, any other Dr. Pace that comes to your mind that is beyond the medications? Well, I did like the idea of a TENS unit for some patients, as long as they don't have any implanted devices. It's worth a try, very low risk, and you can purchase these devices for less than $50 on Amazon. And then the other would be a referral to our anesthesia pain colleagues um, who may have some interventional techniques that could be of benefit. And as Dr. Tepley was thinking about an implanted device, those are often the folks who would, would be uh, placing those uh, kinds of um, uh, equipment as well. So, but I'd favor trying less invasive, less expensive kinds of, of treatments first. Right. Dr. Tepley? Agreed. You see the look on the patient's face, and if they're not having a significant response to the opioids that I'm trying, then I start to get nervous, and I'm starting to think about the possibility of a, uh, an intrathecal pain pump. All right, a great first case. I think we covered a lot of topics here from uh, screening tools uh, to trying to assess this, the situation to assess the pain strategy using a combination of short and long acting pain medications, uh, managing the side effects and uh, intolerance with opioid rotations and some, uh, some cool techniques that people have used. And then of course, integrative care, palliative care, biopsychosocial spiritual phenomena of pain and how's that addressed as Dr. Pace pointed out looking at all the resources available and then using adjuvant analgesics and other treatment options. So again, uh, in, uh, for this case, the fentanyl patch was increased uh, due to difficulty in pain management. Morphine was added for frequent breakthroughs. Uh, the pain was ultimately tight. Uh, the pain medications were ultimately titrated between fentanyl extended release morphine uh, and breakthrough morphine. Patient did undergo local radiotherapy to target this area as seen in the screenshots below showing the radiation dose distributions, very targeted, very focused. Uh, and then of course, extensive counseling was done for patient and family with referrals for pain clinic, palliative care and radiation oncology. So moving on to the, to the second case, uh, one of the factors that was brought up in the prior discussion is, is whether patient is a narcotic naive or does have history before uh, in the previous for other medical reasons. And so, we're going to look at narcotic naive patient. So 74 year old woman, pain in the lower sacral area, which is getting worse when she tries to sit and at night impacting her sleep. It's been increasing over a three month period, radiating down her uh, right leg. Uh, the physician orders uh, initially conservative measures and then an MRI, which, really, uh, which reveals a lytic lesion at the S2 extending and impinging on the nerve roots. 
PET scan shows MS in the lung and many additional sites of bony metastatic disease. Unfortunately, the biopsy does confirm a metastatic lung cancer. The patient, the 74, has history of hypertension, osteoarthritis, cholecystectomy uh, when she was very young, uh, has had problems with chronic constipation and acid reflux. She did try acetaminophen for her pain, but has not been helpful. She did use narcotics for her cholecystectomy a few decades ago and did not like the side effects, but doesn't have uh, specific details that she can remember. So the focus of the conversation now is, is just looking at NSAIDs as a treatment options and how to build that up. Dr. Tepley, uh, what is your strategy for initiating pain management just using NSAIDs, especially in this, in this setting of elderly patients who are narcotic naive? It's just a back and forth discussion with people. Um, it is always something that I consider as part of a step up therapy. So my favorite medication of all time is acetaminophen, if that works for people, because that will have the least amount of side effects as long as they're staying under the maximum recommended daily dose, which is generally about 3000 milligrams a day or 4000, depending on how much you want to push it. So with then I do tend to think about NSAIDs as the next step. If I can get away with using a topical NSAID like Diclofenac, that's great, but that's often not enough for situations like this. I try to um, use uh, longer acting NSAIDs. So once daily meloxicam or uh, twice daily celecoxib. Um, there's maybe possibly something that those might not cause as much of a risk of GI bleeding. Um, and those tend to be a little bit better tolerated from my observation without causing as much uh, issues with reflux. Um, that said, oftentimes, if people are concerned about that, I, I'm also talking with them about starting a proton pump inhibitor um, at the same time um, and just balancing the risks of trying this for their pain compared to stepping up to opioids. All right. So a few different options uh, that you talked about, including addressing side effects. Uh, you referred to gastritis management. Uh, Dr. Crowley, uh, what is your strategy for using NSAIDs and side effects that you worry about? Yeah, you know, I think NSAIDs are, are kind of tricky in the population that I usually see because a lot of them have CKD, a lot of them have, you know, heart disease, a number of them are on like dual antiplatelet, and then uh, a number of them are, are very frail, which is a number of comorbidities. So I find myself not using NSAIDs that often in the clinic for that reason, because it's, it's a, a patient population that, you know, they've just contraindicated in, you know, another thing to consider um, for patients that are, you know, undergoing chemotherapy is that a lot of the time they're going to be thrombocytopenic during periods of that. And that's another consideration that we need to think about when we're, when we're thinking of, of using NSAIDs. Uh, if we are going to, to, to use NSAIDs, we use naproxen quite often. Other times if they have um, NSAIDs at home, we can try and optimize using the NSAIDs that they, they have. But as I said, it's just because the population we treat most often, we're, we're probably going to the, to the opioids fairly early on. All right. So the, the concomitant or the ongoing oncological uh, treatments and how that get uh, impacted by use of NSAIDs is important. Thrombocytopenia is an effect Dr. Crowley highlighted. Dr. Pace. So I agree with Dr. Crowley and with Dr. Tepley. Frankly, I the patients I see um, have generally already tried NSAIDs. This woman has likely musculoskeletal pain and neuropathic pain because of the, the radiculopathy that she's having. 
Um, so the NSAID isn't going to be a great help for the radicular kind of pain, which is more neuropathic. Dr. Crowley very appropriately mentioned the cardiovascular effects, and I do see that a lot of healthcare professionals don't seem to be very aware of the increased risk of stroke and MI associated with NSAIDs. Um, particularly in people who are at risk. Now, she doesn't have amazing risk factors, but she's not a young person. And so she may have some undiagnosed uh, cardiovascular issues. Piece that I would, I just would like to point out that with all of our efforts to not use opioids, I am seeing more GI bleeds associated with NSAIDs. So I would definitely get this person on a PPI, even if she were on celecoxib or meloxicam, because we often have these folks with baby aspirin or, you know, they get they get a PE and now they're um, on a uh, an anticoagulant and boy, that really places them at increased risk. All right. Uh, again, uh, highlighted uh, uh, emphasis on the GI side effects that come along. Uh, Dr. Crowley? Um, I think I, I'd, I'd spoken about the, the things, but uh, do you want to move on to the next one? Or you're... Yeah, all right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, losing track of uh, which contestant is fighting how, how well. Uh, uh, so for, uh, for, for these patients, uh, again, recognizing that you would want to get to the opioids as, as quickly as possible, there are some side effects with opioids that also need to be managed. And so I guess, uh, what is your strategy when in patients like these where presenting with chronic constipation, and how do you address that in your practice, Dr. Crowley? Yes, I think in someone that has chronic um, constipation, I think firstly, you know, before you start any uh, opioids, you do have to educate the patient in terms of the side effects they're going to see and, and how long we expect those side effects to last. So things like nausea and, you know, the kind of somnolence associated when you start opioids, they tend to, you know, get better as time goes on, but constipation doesn't. So the constipation um, stays there throughout your treatment with opioids. So it's something that patients need to to keep on top of. For this patient from the offset, I think we'd be starting her on Senna probably from the beginning. Uh, I don't see that she's on any um, laxatives currently. So she would be on Senna probably from the beginning because that's a stimulant laxative. And then we would add in more medications um, as needed. All right. Starting on a stimulant laxative like Senna uh, up front and, and talk, expecting the side effects. Dr. Pace? So this is right up my alley as the pain and poop nurse. I agree with Dr. Crowley. We have to educate people. We have to set expectations too. So we want you to have a bowel movement every day or every other day. And I wish I had a dollar every time I heard, but I'm not eating. Even if you're not eating, you need to have a bowel movement. You need to get rid of some of that bacteria and other things that are in the colon. And the way I model it for patients is it's mush and push that when the opioids are taken, the peristalsis slows and all of the water in the feces get sucked back up into the lining of the gut. So to correct that, you need something to push. That's the senna. And most people need something that will mush, something to soften it. So it could be a docusate, it could be a Miralax. Uh, I prefer to have the Senna and docusate together, even though I know that there are some studies that say docusate doesn't work. And once one or two studies have said that Senna don't work, but if you really um, evaluate a lot of those studies, they're in really, really end stage patients with a lot of other comorbid issues. So then I talk about the first phase is prevention, and then the second phase is dynamite. So hopefully if we do a good job with prevention, 
you won't need the dynamite. And dynamite is day two. If you haven't pooped that night, we need something. So how's that for a start? I think that is a great start. So keep uh, keep, keep focusing on the poops are, are very important for patients who are on opioids. Uh, Dr. Tepley. I want to circle back that um, I, uh, to agree with Dr. Pace and Dr. Crowley about care with NSAIDs. Um, that said, I have some people who will absolutely refuse to take opioids because of the constipation on top of their constipation they already have. So I will oftentimes do a time-limited trial of an NSAID if they don't have other medical contraindications because they're so worried about this issue. I would definitely want to know what other things have possibly helped with the constipation in the past so that we're already not trying things that this person has tried before. And so I tend to um, start with polyethylene glycol and Senna, depending on, as Dr. Pace was saying, the mush or push issue. Some people do not have opioid-induced constipation. And so um, I give people anticipatory guidance that they will probably need to use one or the other or both of these agents, but they, I don't necessarily have people start right off the bat and then start to have um, issues with diarrhea on top of what's happening. And it, it's a frustrating, I just tell them, this is frustrating trying to figure this out because it's a lot of trial and error. Uh, and generally speaking, the overdose on this is just diarrhea. Um, and so I'll have them start slow and then gradually increase as needed. Um, and then if they can't take the volume of polyethylene glycol and they still need something to kind of soften things, um, I have a low threshold to jump to lactulose at very, very small volumes um, for them to use as needed. Right, Dr. Tepley's favorites are uh, polyethylene glycol and, and lactulose. Uh, with that, I think, uh, again, these are important uh, factors of recognizing the side effects for NSAIDs and opioids and, and having a strategy to address with those as you approach your pain uh, management is very important. Uh, so after addressing uh, an elderly uh, patient who's uh, narcotic naive, and, uh, and addressing the various side effect management. We are, we're still continuing that theme, but this time focusing a little bit more uh, on, on, on other general aspects. So 84 year old uh, who comes with a thigh mass uh, uh, had noticed uh, nine months ago, uh, abdominal pain, this led to workup, ultimately leading to a diagnosis of a lung nodule, uh, which for which she underwent a wedge resection and a lobectomy to confirm a sarcomatoid carcinoma stage one. Uh, but then two months ago, she started noticing swelling in her thigh, which became pain painful and started to grow. And at the biopsy, did confirm metastatic sarcomatoid carcinoma again. The pain has been constant uh, in nature, throbbing six to ten, uh, six out of ten on the visual analog score. She's using acetaminophen uh, without uh, any other relief. So I think building up on the conversation we we just did in the prior case for these patients, where uh, NSAIDs may or may not be helpful. Uh, and they are elderly, and they are uh, narcotic naive. Uh, what is your first line approach uh, to get started? Again, reminding uh, everyone that this is an 84-year-old uh, who, who has presented to the clinic with metastatic disease. So, Dr. Pace. So, in the ESCO guidelines that we just published this past year related to the use of opioids, we conducted a very large systematic review of all of the randomized controlled trials related to opioids. And frankly, there isn't one opioid that's better than another. So that was the, the conclusion um, of our review. So what really leads one to choose an agent is first, you know, what is the patient tolerated well in the past? 
Um, what are some of their comorbidities? Again, back to renal failure that both Dr. Crowley and Dr. Tepley mentioned, you wouldn't want to think about morphine um, for that particular agent. Morphine, codeine, hydrocodone would not be great choices. Um, and sometimes we choose an agent because it's available in a lower dose. So the smallest tablet of morphine in terms of dosing is 15 milligrams. Um, and yes, one can use liquids, but they're kind of a pain for a lot of our patients to use. Um, so sometimes we look at other agents like oxycodone, which comes in five milligrams. You can cut that tablet in half. Again, not optimal, um, but it's possible. And then um, hydromorphone comes in two milligrams. So we look at comorbidities, we look at the bioavailability, we look at the route of administration. Uh, at this point, it looks like the patient likely can swallow a pill. So we'd wanna think about the agents um, that have a low dose and which one will get approved by the insurance companies because that has been a huge problem and where we don't have a shortage. Right now in the Chicago area, we have a horrible shortage on the hydrocodone, 10 milligrams. Just about a month ago, we had a terrible shortage on oxycodone. And we also currently have a very significant problem obtaining fentanyl patches. Right. So starting uh, an option that starts with a low dose uh, and then can be built up and, of course, limited by availability and insurance. Dr. Tepley. I, uh, I agree with the different considerations that Dr. Pace was mentioning. Um, I just ask people about starting the lowest doses. Do they want do they prefer to take a pill or liquid? And depending on what they say, my my general starting dose is either hydrocodone, five milligrams split in half or oxycodone, five milligrams split in half as a pill um, or using oxycodone liquid or hydromorphone liquid. Um, and starting, I've started people at 0.25 or half an ml of hydromorphone just so that they're not scared of, of the effect that it'll have on them. Um, there's also increasing, increasing recommendations about using buprenorphine first line for people who are elderly. Um, so using the lowest dose buprenorphine patch of five micrograms, um, it, it lasts for up to seven days at a time. Um, that's probably has the best safety profile in terms of not having respiratory depression. Uh, the biggest issue is uh, insurance coverage for those patches. All right, so buprenorphine is a good option if insurance uh, covers. Uh, Dr. Crowley? Yeah, buprenorphine, I think we use a lot in our, in our palliative care clinics and our elderly patients, so that, that's what I was going to say. Um, but obviously, it's not something I would recommend um, people probably in the oncology clinics to be starting. Um, for at the beginning, it's probably something that you'd need to refer to pal care to start, but we do use it a lot in our elderly patients. And then, you know, I kind of agree with everything that's been said already. One thing is that, you know, these are patients that I probably follow up a little bit more frequently uh, with about the medicines in the first few days after we started, um, just to, to see how they're doing um, and see, can we try and get an effective dose that's not causing them too much um, in, in way of side effects or, or somnolence. So, yeah, they're patients that I follow a little bit more closely in the first few weeks. And that sets us to the next slide, which is very important, is following these patients closely is, 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 is relevant, especially in the elderly population. So this patient lives with her husband who's mobile but has uh, his own health problems, uh, didn't have much medical issues before other than irritable bowel disease. Her son lives close by, um, but she's uh, uh, anxious about the pain and the discomfort and the imp negative impact on quality of life. 
She's really uh, worried about getting addicted with any opioids. She was recommended oxycodone by, uh, by her uh, doctor. So I guess for patients who are worried about addiction, especially at this age, not just the constipation issues, how do you approach that discussion and communication, uh, Dr. Tepley? I find that it's less helpful to present facts and data to people. What I tend to say is I am not worried about the risk of addiction for them, given the fact that they've gotten through life this far without that as an issue. But that said, uh, this is a tool that we have. You have a choice to get through your day and to keep doing what you have. It is always a choice for you to keep doing what you're doing. And at the same time, we have this tool that we would start with the lowest possible dose and walk with you as you're taking it and how you're feeling with it. And we can always stop or adjust or change courses as needed. Um, And so really trying as best as possible to say that this person is not taking this because they're an addict. This person is taking this because it is a tool to help them get through their day the same way that we use any other types of tools and equipment to make life a little bit less distressing and a little bit more manageable. That's that's relevant. So focusing on, on using opioids or medications as a tool. Uh, Dr. Pace, what is your take on this? So when I would first meet this patient, I would have In addition to a complete pain history, I would have also done a screening for um, risk for misuse. And those questions, what some people use uh, screening tools, I like to include it in my history. Simple questions about smoking and alcohol use and cannabis use, illicit uh, compound use either currently or in the past. I ask about family history. It's a proxy for genetics, but it also tells me who's living in the home. And then the last question that I I ask, and I always give the patient that palliative care warning shot, I have a very difficult question to ask you right now. And that is, have you ever been abused? And most people are kind of uh, surprised that I'm asking that question and I'll ask, especially if they say, no, I've never been. I'll say, you're wondering why I ask you that question. It's because that's one of the strongest predictors for addiction or substance use disorder. And do you know all these questions I just asked you were about your risk and I really saw no red flags. So that would be the way I would approach this particular patient is to just let her know I've already screened her for her risk and I saw no red flags. All right, assessing a patient's uh, history or risk factors for drug abuse is an important variable there. Dr. Crowley. Yeah, something else which I I do a lot with these patients is I try to, you know, ask a lot of exploring questions and and try and figure out where this, you know, fear has come from. And I think sometimes when you do that, you know, sometimes patients will, you know, talk about things they saw on Netflix, but other patients, you know, have had, um, you know, addiction in their I suppose, in friends or, or families or have been affected in some way. And, and you know, for those patients, I think sometimes it's, it's a bit of a longer discussion because they have kind of preconceived ideas on, on different things that need to be addressed. Um, because I think the, the worry about being addicted is, comes from a different place in, in different patients. So I think I do try and explore where that's come from or, or what the exact fears are. Um, and then I you know, reassure them that my job is to, to treat their pain, but also to keep them safe and, and that we're not going to recommend anything that's going to put them in harm's way. And that if we were if we were concerned that, um, you know, she was going to become addicted to medications, we you know, might change 
um, how we follow her up or we might change in, in terms of how we prescribe things. But if we've done our, a screening tool, which we do at the first encounter for all these patients, in addition to a UTOX, um, you know, I, I would reassure her that that's not something we're concerned about with her. Right. So three great uh, communication strategies using exploring questions is what Dr. Crowley recommends in addition to reassurance. Moving on, the patient was uh, initiated on uh, uh, oxycodones. The dose was titrated up. Morphine extended release was added. She unfortunately did present to the ED with increasing confusion over two-week period and was admitted with a diagnosis of delirium. Uh, infection, lab workup, et cetera, was done to rule out other causes of delirium. So let's quickly review uh, 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 the strategies for managing delirium in this setting from uh, opioid use. It's not an overuse or an abuse. It's specific to this patient population. Uh, so what are your different takes and uh, which drugs are you uh, do you prefer? Dr. Crowley, let's start with you this time. Yes, I guess you, you kind of start with managing delirium in any setting. I know you said that the infection and, and lab work doesn't reveal any other causes, but trying to figure out has any other medication been been added recently um, in elderly patients? Are they sleeping? Are they constipated? Uh, urinary retention? All of these things need to be need to be looked at. Um, and then, you know, if you do all that and nothing's coming up, I think you have to to consider whether it's the, the opioids or, or not. Um, one thing I'm wondering about here is, you know, is her pain controlled on the on the opioids? Um, because if it it is controlled and well controlled, um, you know, we'd have to figure out how many PRNs she's needing. You could try and maybe come down on the opioids and see does that help with the confusion, or else you you might consider uh, rotating. Um, and then in terms of drugs to be used when she's admitted with delirium, I don't know that that's for in terms of pain or or for, for delirium treatment. management. Yeah, so I think in, in these patients, you know, we really try and avoid chemical restraints um, if, if possible. Um, so I think usually the best thing is, is try to get family at bedside, try to reorientate them as best you can, try to preserve day and night. Um, and then usually if we have to use a medicine, it would be Haldol, low-dose Haldol is what we would probably use. But again, we, we really don't use that unless the patient is um, a risk to themselves or a risk to, to those around them. Right. Uh, Dr. Pace? agree with everything that Dr. Crowley said, and I would think about rotating to a different opioid. And we do find that for some patients, particularly closer to the end of life, a little bit of fluids can be helpful. So if that isn't contraindicated, um, that might be useful, um, whether it just helps the individual clear some of the metabolites of the agent, um, but that can um, reverse some of the delirium that we see, particularly at end of life. All right, another practical point from Dr. Pace. Uh, Dr. Tepley? I, I think everything else has been really well said. There's maybe possibly some thought that I've seen that people think that buprenorphine is possibly doesn't cause as much issues with confusion. So that is another case to make for that. And then I would be thinking about these already before that, but um, would any nerve blocks be helpful by interventional pain? Would any radiation be helpful given the fact that this is generally one area? And then oftentimes just recognizing with opioid rotation, there's this idea of incomplete cross tolerance. So you might possibly be able 
to utilize lower doses of the medication that you're switching to than you otherwise thought because you're switching it up and kind of confusing the, the pain receptors. Um, and then just with delirium, I know that we all talk about not using medications, but at the end of the day, sometimes you still just have to. That's just the reality of the situation. And so uh, in hospital system, we'll oftentimes use atypical antipsychotics like risperidone or quetiapine as well. Right. So again, uh, opioid rotation and then and ultimately managing the delirium medically um, is, is relevant. So this case, again, uh, was um, uh, managed with all the re- uh, factors that was mentioned in the discussion, op- uh, constipation management, monitoring for confusion. And then when she did come with uh, delirium, she was managed with dose reductions of opioids, haloperidol. And then, as Dr. Tepley noted, patient was recommended palliative radiotherapy which was very effective. So we'll now move to two quick cases on acute pain on expected short-term duration. Uh, This is me coming in with my radiation oncology background, trying to bring out these uh, situations that we see in clinics. So a 65-year-old extensive smoking history, uh, active antiretroviral therapy, past IV drug abuse history, uh, who presents with cough, uh, workup uh, leads to a diagnosis of a non-small cell lung cancer with PET CT scan, Findings as shown, a pet avid mass in the right hilum, um, subcarinal region, mediastinal invasion, negative metastatic disease is stage 3B, so treated with concurrent chemo radiation. Uh, patients uh, plan for 60 grade, 30 fractions of radiation with carboplatin paclitaxel, and week three uh, uh, starts developing esophagitis symptoms, which is commonly seen with radiation therapy. Um, so with, with that, uh, let's review the management for these acute uh, issues that are more endoluminal uh, types. So first-line management options, uh, Dr. Crowley. Yes, I think the, the first thing you said, dietary modification. So that's always the, the first line. Then in terms of other things, you, you think about, um, I guess, lidocaine liquid, um, morphine, uh, liquid is another one that we would use quite often. But, you know, usually if people have very bad Ophagitis from this, where I'm actually seeing them is on the inpatient setting um, when they're admitted for reduced PO intake or failure to thrive. And then a lot of those patients who are admitted in, in that case, then a lot of the times we put them on a, a PCA. Um, I think one thing that's you know important to, to think about when you're doing this is that you know if a patient loses a lot of weight during this period or loses a lot of weight during treatment. Uh, for their cancer, we know that those patients have a lot worse outcomes. Um, so I think a lot of the time people might be putting off starting opioids in this scenario because they, you know, they're they're worried about the side effects or they're worried about opioid misuse. But really, you know, if the patient isn't able to get through their treatment or they have to be admitted or on a PCA or they lose a lot of weight, it can have a, a lot of impact on their cancer treatment as a whole. So that's something that has to be weighed up in the in this decision um, when you're thinking about starting opioids. Uh, or not. Dr. Tepley? At my training institution, when they anticipated radiation around the esophagus, they would start people on gabapentin and try to get as many people as possible up to a dose of um, 800 milligrams three times a day. And they essentially almost did that prophylactically. Um, on the times when I've seen people that um, haven't already been on that, that's something that I consider just all that irritation to the It's almost like a burn injury. And so that's something that I consider as an adjunct. And then um, trying that 
well, trying that first and then using opioids as needed. And then forgive me, Dr. Crowley, if this is where sometimes palliative care will advocate for a feeding tube, that if there's like more contact irritation by swallowing things by mouth, like, well, let's just bypass that so that we're not irritating the area any further. So that's something I would potentially think about. Um, and then are we already at the question of factors when evaluating for opioid misuse? We'll, we'll come to that uh, in, in a second as well. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Pace, uh, what are your first-line options that you think about for these patients? I would I would consider a, um, the gabapentin, um, and that does come in a liquid as well. Um, for, so if they've if they haven't started the person on gabapentin already, that could be a little bit easier tolerated. And then uh, liquid opioids, and the liquid opioids, as has already been mentioned, could be long uh, the short-acting liquid morphine, there's oxycodone, hydromorphone, and then uh, hydrocodone as well comes in uh, a liquid. The hydrocodone is... Um, is a little bit more milky. And so some patients prefer that and others do not. You have to be cautious about how much acetaminophen the patient can tolerate. The general guidelines now are 2,000 to 3,000 milligrams per day. All right. Um, so with those options and recognizing gabapentin as an option, that's actually underutilizing the radiation community, but there is definitely data for head neck mucositis as well. And so coming to the second factor, Dr. Pace, I know you addressed that partially, but this patient has history of IV drug abuse, has been sober for 10 years, is on antiretrovirals for that management, uh, and is concerned about because of his prior abuse history. So let's say this patient is at a point where gabapentin is not working, other uh, approaches has not been considered. How do you then discuss or evaluate these patients who have drug abuse history? So my experience has been that many people with a prior history of substance use disorder who has been sober for this long, it is almost more difficult to get them to consider using an opioid for pain control. And yet, you know, helping them to discern the difference between when they might've been using the agents for recreation, for other purposes, and that now it is to help keep their nutrition so they can tolerate their therapy so that we can shrink the tumor and describe for them all the potential benefits of taking the agent. Sometimes, um, this is a patient who had an IV drug use. Sometimes I'll bring in the family members to help with um, sort of monitoring and dispensing. Sometimes, unfortunately, with my patients who are currently uh, still experiencing substance use disorder, they often have pretty fractured family relationships but incorporating the family into the delivery of the medication so the patient maybe feels that there's a little bit more structure. And then I would only dispense small amounts at a time so that um, in case they did become more compulsive about using the drug and taking more than what was ordered, they don't have a whole month's supply to misuse. But I would have a low concern for someone who's been sober for such a long period of time. Right. So again, uh, encouraging them. These are tougher patients to manage and starting with small amounts. Dr. Crowley? Yeah, I think, um, you know, echoing what's, what's been said, uh, usually for these patients, you know, we do the 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 UTOX on the initial visit. We do our, our opioid screen. And, and then we say that, you know, really, you know, our aim, as I said, is, is keeping them safe. And what that usually looks like um, is shorter uh, prescriptions. We check the eye stop every time they come in, um, which is what we we do for every patient, but we make sure to do for them. 
Um, and then, uh, yeah, just more frequent follow up. Um, what I would say is, you know, this is kind of a little bit of a different case because, you know, it's a patient that is, we're thinking is only going to, if they need opioids, it should only be for a few weeks. And I think it's really important to set that expectation from the beginning in these patients that are going to be on it for short term to say, you know, look, we're starting this, but we're going to be tapering this pretty quickly when the symptoms start to um, to get better. And I think that creates a sense that there's, there's a little bit of control in this situation and it's not a case that we're starting and they're going to be on it for forever. Um, you know, in, in patients with cancer pain generally, you know, I have a patient in our clinic who uses active heroin, um, but if we don't treat his pain, he uses more heroin. So sometimes in those cases, it becomes a little bit of a harm reduction setting where you're you're trying to minimize the, the heroin they're using by making sure that their pain is treated appropriately. Um, but it, yeah, it's a little bit different in this case when it's, when it's an acute thing that will hopefully be settled in, in a few weeks. Such an important point that ultimately you're trying to reduce harm and, and, and if avoiding opioids is only going to lead to increased risk for getting to the street drugs, that's a bigger problem. Dr. Depley. I'm going to be a broken record and say this is also where I would consider a buprenorphine product for someone. Um, so there's the long act. And I think why buprenorphine is really intimidating is because it comes in so many different formulations. And insurance coverage is is a challenge with it. There's a long-acting uh, buprenorphine patch, but there's also um, films that can be cut smaller, um, and so that is a um, and those can be dosed up to three times a day. And so that is a potentially an option that I would talk about with them. And then, depending on the situation and especially in which state a person lives, um, if it was specifically a concern about opioids, I might consider bringing up cannabis as an option for them to see if that might possibly help with their pain. All right. So I, I, buprenorphine is, is definitely a point Dr. Tepley is highlighting, definitely for all the audience and uh, to try to focus on that and, and read about that a little bit more. Uh, with that, again, uh, the, the patient did have worsening symptoms, was managed appropriately, and then uh, grad, uh, tapered off uh, very quickly in, in one or two, two lines. What is your typical taper approach for these patients with short-term pain management, uh, Dr. Tepley? I try to reduce by about 10% every two to four weeks, depending on how quickly we're going of the total dose. Right. So, so a relatively a slow, gradual taper, 10%. Dr. Pace? The same. If the, this person has only been on it for a few weeks, I might go a little bit more rapidly. Um, but the general rule of thumb is 10 to 20% reduction uh, per every few weeks. All right, Dr. Carly. And providing a lot of coaching and support and, um, you know, helping them to see what the final game plan is and maybe even mapping it out for them so they can see where we're headed. Mm -hmm. Dr. Crowley? Yeah, the, the same. I, I think usually it's around 10% every few weeks and just to educate patient on, on if they're having symptoms of withdrawal and, and how we manage those with kind of non-opioid medications usually um, and supportive medications to help them through. There's one point I would probably uh, throw in a referee punch in here is for these patients who've been on these medications for about just three to five weeks, if we go as slow as 10 to 20% or a few weeks, it lands up being fairly extensive there. What often happens is their symptoms resolve fairly quickly uh, on their own, and then they are ready to get get done. So again, obviously, these are complicating factors that you have to account for uh, in the in the patient. So moving on, uh, just along the line. So this patient was managed with dietary modifications. Sucralfit is what a lot of radiation oncologists use as a, as a barrier protection, uh, a combination of uh, what we call as magic mouthwash with 
diphenhydramine, malox, viscous lidocaine, and then of course going along the routes of uh, oxycodones, IV fluids, nutrition referrals, and then starting to taper as their symptoms improve. Some patients, however, will have extended issues with radiation. This is a 62-year-old security guard smoking history, presence with genital itching, uh, and it leads to uh, a diagnosis of vulvar cancer, uh, which uh, is treated with chemoradiation. Patients had significant pain at baseline from uh, the tumor itself and was started on oxycodone, acetaminophen combination by the gyne oncologist. Uh, the skin irritation progresses from radiation week three, four, five, starts having diarrhea, and now suddenly the skin's even more irritated, not exposed to infection. And, and so in scenarios like that, uh, patients then will develop moist discrimination. I'm showing an example of a neck, uh, just uh, not showing a, a genital discrimination here. But when pain starts reaching this level uh, beyond opioids, what all would you typically consider in these settings? Dr. Pace, let's start with you. So this is where I would rely heavily upon the gabapentinoids again, um, because this tends to be very neuropathic in nature. I have a lot of patients that I care for with head and neck cancers. And when we get this kind of desquamation, that can be exquisitely helpful. Once the person is done with radiotherapy, I will sometimes in really complicated cases use a topical morphine solution. It can be mixed with duoderm or any other kind of base. Now, there was a time when people were trying to get away with not using fentanyl patches to save money. And they were applying topical morphine to the wrist for systemic uptake. That doesn't work. Morphine is hydrophilic, but here we have the skin is excoriated and it's open. And so morphine can then be exposed to those primary afferent nerve endings. So, so that's a, um, an option, again, once the radiotherapy is complete. And then, of course, um, systemic treatment with opioids. Right, systemic opioids and topical morphine. And another good practical point that uh, I don't think a lot of practitioners have used. Uh, Dr. Tepley? That's an awesome point about the the topical morphine, uh, the more using morphine solution. My only caveat is I during the radiation treatment, I would again have a lower threshold for using morphine if a long or sorry methadone if a long acting opioid was needed because it might have some more impact on neuropathic pain in addition to. And I also agree with the gabapentin. All right, gabapentin, long acting uh, methadone, uh, Dr. Crowley. Yeah, I agree with what's been said, um, kind of combining your nerve agent um, or else using methadone. I think a lot of the time we end up using opioids for these patients because it takes a little bit of while for the, the gabapentinoids and those to work. And she's coming here currently with nine out of 10 pain. So sometimes it can take a little while for them to get relief. So we probably would give an opioid um, just so that she has a bit of relief on, until the, the adjuvants kick. All right. Now you're already looking ahead, and that is exactly the point. A month post-radiation patient has had a very good response, but at the same time, there's still ongoing pain. And so the long-acting opioids that you've mentioned, uh, would all of you just continue that, uh, Dr. Crowley? Yes, I think methadone um, is a good one in, in this patient if they're on long-acting because of the nerve agents. The other thing is that I think this is a patient that we would think is is probably going to you know, not have, she doesn't have metastatic cancer from what I saw. Mm -hmm. um, so then this is a patient that maybe you might use buprenorphine again, because it's, it's someone that, you know, 
hopefully won't need opioids uh, forever like metastatic patients. All right, we are finally having a contestant starting to get to the buprenorphine uh, uh, point. Uh, Dr. Pace. So hopefully in the beginning when we started the opioid, we were really clear with her why we were using it for pain control only, not to improve mood. It will cause you to feel a little less anxious, especially in the beginning, and not to help fall asleep at night unless it's pain that's keeping someone awake. So I, I'm trying to read between the lines, why is she continuing to have six to eight pain and with the skin resolving? So it could still be the topical damage, but I'm a little bit nervous or worried. Is this also related to the mood changes that she's getting from opioids, that she's depressed, especially at the body image changes? These vulvar cancers are just, um, not only is it a body image change, you think no one sees it except your partner. And it affects voiding and defecating and sexual activity. So I would just have a real low threshold for investigating more uh, about why the opioids seem to be needed and why she's still experiencing pain. All right. So again, looking beyond the local cause of pain and, and the systemic effect that, that it has. Um, Dr. Tepley, did you already put a punch into this uh, answer? I, I lost track. Um, I, I agree with what's been said. And then this is when I would actually think about an SNRI, about trying to see if there's potentially some mood issues and then also trying to treat some of the neuropathic pain with it. All right. So again, uh, using all these different options and then gradually continuing to taper it off. Uh, these patients will oftentimes, exactly like you mentioned, Dr. Pace, for even though the tumor response, radiation effects are gone, uh, they continue to have some low-grade pain for, for multiple local changes that potentially are compounded by systemic effects. Um, so at what point, three, four months, if these patients are still needing opioids, uh, at what point would you uh, attempt a, a weaning or, or, or would transition off to a specialized clinic, uh, Dr. Crowley? Uh, so I think this you know, if she, if it's still, um, you're now weeks and months in, um, she should probably be referred to, to palliative care just for more probably a holistic um, evaluation. And as I said, we have kind of more people in terms of interdisciplinary to assess what else might be might be going on. Um, and then I guess usually the steps in, in those cases, if, if we feel that we can't, um, if, if she still feels she's needing the opioids and we've basically maxed ourselves out um, on the on the adjuvants and we've done the integrative therapies and all of that. Um, we, you know, buprenorphine, as I said, is, is the one that we probably would would stick with if we're not able to taper further. Um, but again, we, you know, we, we do put a lot of effort into um, basically making sure we've no avenue left. Um, uh, we've gone down every avenue in terms of integrated therapies and her kind of assessing her total pain uh, before we would settle that we keep on the opioids. Dr. Pace, last, uh, we are in last two, three minutes, so a quick answer. I would like to recommend to her a short pilot test, if you will, or a short trial of starting to wean just a tiny bit to see if there is any change in her pain. We may have a, a pain response that's that is not really opioid responsive, and it will help me to discern more is how much of this is mood versus how much of this is true uh, pain. Dr. Tepley? 
I agree with trying to see if possible to taper considering buprenorphine. The other thing that it's just not clear to me from the case, how it's presented is if there's a role for trying to mobilize that myofascial tissue that's painful, like if there's a role for pelvic physical therapy, if there's a role for if vaginal dilators, things like that, that would potentially uh, help with the pain as well. All right. So again, looking looking beyond the, the standard uh, routes of management is very important. With that, I think we'll conclude with the FDA, recognizing the FDA established opioids and risk evaluation and mitigation strategy programs to address the public health crisis of addiction, misuse, abuse, overdose, and deaths from opioids. Provider and patient education are key components of the program, both for opioid naive and those with history of abuse and misuse. Uh, providers need to know how to effectively assess and screen patients that require pain management. Communication strategies are critical in developing a comprehensive pain management plan for the patients. And both non-opioid and opioid pharmacological treatment options need to be evaluated. Monitoring for side effects is critical and then requires a multidisciplinary approach between palliative care, supportive oncology, radiation oncology, interventional pain management, radiology, intervention surgery or surgery, anesthesia, neurosurgery, and, and counselors. With that, I think we are ready to wrap this up. To obtain the CECME credit as applies, please uh, click the next page at the conclusion of this uh, session. To receive the credit, you have to complete the post-test and the evaluation uh, to get the credits back. So again, um, many thanks for our, our, our three experts for staying uh, quite late into the evenings. Uh, uh, for, for this really educational discussion. I think we, we all learned a lot and some very good practical tips that came from this. Uh, and I think with that, we are right at the hour. So we will complete this session. Thank you everyone for joining in. You've been listening to a replay of the activity titled KOL Knockout, Cancer Pain Management Edition. This activity was provided by Evolve Medical Education and IASLC. It is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic REMS program companies. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.